Hey, good morning as well, Calvary Church. It's wonderful to be with you as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke, Thrill of Hope. We've been going through since pre-Christmas, Luke chapter 1, and now we're uh, continuing in Luke chapter 2. As uh, the author Luke, Dr. Luke, as he wrote Excellent Theophilus in the beginning of this letter, said, I write to you to give you an orderly and detailed account of the life of Jesus. And so it's been wonderful to walk through these first two chapters and get an orderly and detailed account of Jesus's birth. And now we'll see today a little glimpse, a detail, an account of Jesus at the age of 12. Oh, hey guys. <laughs> you may wonder why I have two friends up here. This is Gage Ayers. Everybody, Gage Ayers. Everybody say hi, Gage. Gage is a sixth grader at Orange County Classic Academy, and he turns 12 in just a few months. This is Seth Doan, my son, and everybody say hi, Seth. Seth is a fifth grader at the school here, at Calvary Christian School. He also turns 12 in 2023. And so we thought it'd be appropriate in an account of Jesus turning 12, of being 12, that we'd have two almost 12-year-olds read this passage. So as you hear this passage read today, and you can turn there now, Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. And as you hear Gage and Seth read this scripture, this story, imagine Jesus being their age as this is happening. And so I hope you're there. Luke chapter 2. 41 through 52, Gage will be reading through the, the NLT version. So Gage, start us off. Every year, Jesus' Jesus's parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to, Na to Nazareth, but, the, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him as, at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and, uh, and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. Well done, boys. God's word right here. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. For what you just heard from these guys uh, matters here today. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that your word and this account written over 2,000 years ago matters to us here today. God, speak to us today. Challenge us. Convict us if needed. Transform us. Move us. Grow us, God. And God, I just lift up Gage and Seth. 
Lord, in this 12th year of their life, may you do mighty things in them. May you make them leaders at their schools. May you make them uh, uh, boys and young men who live for you. We pray this in Jesus. And we said, Amen. amen. Good job, guys. Thank you. So you have this account. Jesus at the age of 12, much like Gage and Seth. It's a pretty remarkable story. And there's all kinds of little details in here. One of the only, uh, the story of Jesus between uh, this age group. You know, sometimes as Christians, we leap from the cradle to the cross, right? And we forget that Jesus lived day by day. For 33 years, he ate, he slept, he had an earthly family, He traveled with that family. He lived lives much like you and I, maybe minus the iPhone and Tesla. (laughs) But Jesus was fully human. That's one of the things we'll see in this passage here today. All kinds of nuggets, good details. The hope, the challenge is that we are challenged to grow in some of the same ways that that Jesus grew as well. The title of this passage, this message is Jesus Grew Up. And we first see in verses 41 and 42, this idea of the spiritual rhythms, the spiritual practices of the family of Jesus. Look again at 41 and 42 in your Bibles. I've highlighted here a couple of words that stuck out to me. It says, every year, Jesus's family went up to Jerusalem for Passover. How far was this from their house? Well, the Bible says that Jesus lived in Nazareth. And so a journey from Nazareth up to Jerusalem, we say up, but actually it's south, would be about 90 miles. And so it would take walking and with animals and various ages of kids and and grown-ups and maybe even elderly relatives It would take a couple of days to get from Nazareth to Jerusalem. If you're walking at a good pace, about 30 hours to get there. It says every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for Passover. And you can see I highlighted that last line there in 42. As they attended the festival as usual. Luke is not missing any details here. He's making a point here at the beginning of this account that Jesus' family had this practice, this rhythm of going up to worship. One of the interesting notes I read from a Jewish rabbi, he said that in Jesus' time in the first century, it was no longer required, or no longer, I should say, expected for families outside of Jerusalem to come to Passover every year. The Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 16 gave a command to the nation of Israel. It said three times every man should go to worship in Jerusalem and bring a sacrificial offering. But in the time of Jesus, the the call, the command from Deuteronomy 16 was kind of like, it's more of a suggestion than something that we have to follow to the letter of the law. And yet, here's Jesus' family every year. Maybe the, the, the Jewish cultural norm around them, even in Nazareth, would be like, wait, you guys are going again? Did, did, didn't you go last year? What? Wow, you guys, are, you guys are serious about this whole worship thing. 
And they were. Joseph and Mary, as we read earlier here in Luke 1, were righteous people. They had a heart, a desire to worship their God. Were they perfect? No. Do we worship them? No. But what an example of people who made worship a priority every year as usual. This was the life, the childhood that Jesus had. He was used to heading up to Jerusalem as a boy. I want to make a note, and I got to be careful with this because I'm a pastor and it might sound self-serving. But does this describe your worship? Would someone say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're always going to worship as usual. Or is worship kind of become for you like it was for those first century Jewish folks outside of Jerusalem, sort of an optional thing. I know as I talk to pastors throughout Orange County and even here in the United States and even globally, people are not returning to church since the pandemic. And it's become sort of more of a loosey optional thing to do. And I have to be careful because I work here and I don't want to step over into legalism. So please like hear this as graceful as I can possibly communicate it. But I think we miss out when we don't make regular worship part of our rhythm of our life, part of our activities of our week. And I know there's a lot competing Sunday mornings, it feels like even recently it's been raining every Sunday morning or it's been freezing. Like there, there, there's colds going around everywhere. Sports is creeping in on Sundays. It feels like the only thing that's closed now on Sundays is Chick-fil-A. <laughs> there's a lot of distractions and things that we do and good things that we have to do. But I challenge us, look at the family of Jesus. Every year, as usual, they went. Now, I got to tell you, just a humbling story. Don't you just feel like whenever you teach anybody, you're the one that learns the most or you're the one that gets convicted the most? <laughs> so yesterday around 10.30 a.m., we had already had kind of a different morning. Um, we had to send a kid to urgent care. He's okay. But it was just kind of, we're, you know, our, our morning was thrown off. Everyone's back in the house. It's 10.30 in the morning Saturday, and my sweet wife Marie goes, all right, should we do our Sabbath time? So every Saturday morning, we try to gather the six of us, Marie and I and our four kids, and we just spend some time together with the Lord. It's something we've tried to do over the last few years, and it's been so beautiful to see this progress in our kids. Uh, at first, it was rough. Our kids were littler. I remember one time when one of our sons, um, we put 20 minutes on the oven clock. And then the clock um, alarm went off and we all gathered back together and we went around, okay, what did you do in your 20 minutes? How, how did that time go? And one of our kids goes, oh, I need more time. And we're like, really? Okay, this is working. <laughs> goes, give me like 10 more minutes. We're like, okay. So we gave him 10 more minutes. And then after those 10 minutes, we go, okay, come on back. Share, what, what's God doing? What, what are you reading? What are you learning? And he flips open, flips open this page and he had drawn Star Wars figures for his 30 minutes. <laughs> We're like, okay, it's not quite the intention of this devotional Sabbath time. But we've progressed as a family. We're not perfect, but we're growing in this. And so every Saturday, we try to set aside this time. So yesterday, 1030, Marie goes, hey, let's do Sabbath. I'm like, ah. Uh. <laughs> I have so much to do, Marie. 
I have to write a message. I mean, I already written it, but I just have to look over it. <laughs> Literally, I'm at the coffee table and I open up to Luke 2:41, and I read these words every year as usual. <laughs> and I just got convicted. All right, let's do Sabbath. Everybody gather up in the living room right here. So if me, a full-time vocational pastor, struggle with the rhythms of worship, then I know you do too. But what an example Jesus and his family are every year as usual. And then you go to verse 43. It says, after the celebration, now uh, the scriptures also say in Deuteronomy 16 that you are allowed to leave Passover in, in the temple area after the first day. But Jesus' family stays for the whole week of festival. They enjoy that week with family and friends. Maybe they hunt out with John the Baptist's family. And then they begin their journey, 30-hour, 90-mile journey back up to Nazareth. Verse 43 says, as they begin that journey, look at that last line, his parents didn't miss him at first. Now, before you call Child Protective Services on Mary and Joseph, there's a little cultural thing happening here. Jesus was 12 years old, as we've mentioned. So he's right in between that tweener stage. Typically, the women and the kids would journey ahead. If they had to take a long journey, they would go a little bit ahead. The men would fall in behind them and take up the rear. So it's very possible as this family leaves Jerusalem, Joseph is in the back and he's with other cousins and brothers and family members. And he assumes that Jesus is with Mary. He's with the, the women and the children. Now Mary, up in front, knowing Jesus is 12 years old, almost a bar mitzvah as a 13-year-old, as, as a young man, she probably assumes Jesus is back with the men. So with both of those assumptions, you read verse 44. Because they assumed that they were among their travelers, they didn't worry about it until that evening when they gathered together and they realized Jesus was missing. It's really an ancient Home Alone story right here. <laughs> I love this scene. If you've seen the movie Home Alone, you can just picture her screaming in your mind if you've seen this movie, haven't you? As Kevin McAllister goes missing. This was Jesus. Uh, the family panics. They are looking for him among their relatives and friends. They're about a day away from Jerusalem at this point, and they realize that Jesus is not with them. So Joseph and Mary, it just says the family or relatives, we don't exactly know who went back to find Jesus, maybe more than just two, but they return to Jerusalem, and this is where the story gets really good. <laughs> Verses 45 through 50, we see both the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. You see, up to this point in the account of Luke in chapter 1 and 2, we've had described that Jesus is both God and man. Or I should accurately say God and baby. Now here in chapter 2, we don't only hear it described, but we see the humanity and the deity of Jesus demonstrated. Verse 45, family returns 
looking for Jesus. They're wondering what has happened. Maybe they're even thinking, well, remember when he was a baby and, and there was that bounty put on over him and we had to flee to Egypt and maybe that group of people have now found Jesus again and, and kidnapped him. And there's all kinds of things I imagine going through Mary and Joseph's minds. Have you ever lost a kid? You don't have to raise your hand, although a few of you brave people just did. Been at Disneyland and looked around and all of a sudden, where did they go? You know the panic, the fear that any mother or father would be facing. But we see in this story that, that Jesus didn't share their panic. He was perfectly at peace of where God had him because he was fully God, yet also a human. All right, let me take a little step from the story, step out of the story Talk about catechisms. I know that was on your list today. Like, I hope the pastor talks about catechism. But this was a, a wonderful mark in the history of the church, the Heidelberg Catechism. It was put together in the 1500s, a few decades after Martin Luther nailed the theses to the door in Wittenberg, Germany. This was also a group of theologians uh, specifically, a 28-year-old university theologian and a 26-year-old pastor. They got together and wrote the Heidelberg Catechism. It's over 125 questions. And the questions they put answers to. And the goal was to teach the youth of Germany good biblical theology. That's something that we even want to do here at Calvary today is teach our youth biblical theology as they enter into a hostile world. That they would know, that they would know, even as we son about that they are children of God. So the Heidelberg Catechism was put together uh, to help youth with theology. And one of the questions, question 16 of those 129 questions, is why must Jesus be a man? Why did he have to be human? And I like the answer of of what this 26-year-old and 28-year-old put together. They said, God's justice demands that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its sin. But the problem is a sinner could never pay for others. We need a sinless human. Jesus had to be human and he had to be sinless in order for his sacrifice on the cross to matter, to apply to sinful humans. I know you probably had your coffee about an hour ago and it's burnt off, so you might have just went <laughs> over you right there. But there's an idea in theology that Jesus had to be human for the cross to count. And yet the next question in the catechism, 17, is why must Jesus also be God? And the answer is so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's wrath in humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Jesus had to be a human in order to step in for humanity's sin, but he had to be God in order for it to matter to count for eternity because our sin is against the eternal God and we need an eternal being to pay for our eternal sin. And Jesus is the perfect match. 
This has been wrestled about for thousands of years. There was a creed in modern-day Turkey, Istanbul, that was done about 1,000 years before the Heidelberg Catechism. They brought 500 theologians together in Istanbul and wrestled with the idea of what does it mean that, that Jesus is human and he's also God? Is it like Superman? <laughs> he hides his identity or he steps into his identity at certain points and then steps out of his identity at another point. So at one moment, he's a human and then he goes over here and now he's Jesus, he's God. And then he kind of bounces back and forth. There's been a lot of heretical theology wrestling with this question. The Chalcedonian Creed says it like this. And again, I know you came here hoping, I hope we can read a creed this morning. But this is powerful. This is written 451 AD, and yet it still it matters today. It says this, we all teach harmoniously, you got it, that Jesus is the same perfect in Godhead, the same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. I love that sentence. The same of a reasonable soul and body, homeosis with the Father and Godhead, and the same with us in manhood. Acknowledged in two natures, and then listen to this, this is key. Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Jesus, 100% human, so that he could live the perfect human life. 100% God so that his sacrifice would count for eternity. It's just incredible. And we see both the humanity and deity displayed here in this passage. Verse 46, go back to Luke 2. Jesus, the same age as Seth and Gage, is sitting at the temple asking questions of the top religious leaders in Jerusalem, and I've highlighted that last line, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. There was something set apart about this boy, Jesus. There was something unique here about Jesus. This was not the typical, even uh, future rabbi that they had learned to, to groom and to grow up. This, this little boy was, was at a whole different level. It says that they were amazed at his answers. I want you to circle too, or just even highlight or point at it in your Bible, the three days. Now, you remember, Luke is writing this post-resurrection. Probably one of his references, interviews, and putting together this account was Mary. Even in this story, we see some insight that only Mary could have. So he notes it was three days that Jesus' family was looking for him. If you've ever been to the old city of Jerusalem, there's these little tiny roads and they curve around. And it's not like you can just stand on top of some like four-way intersection and look around the whole city. Like it's difficult to find your way around. You can easily get lost. And for three days... The journey back to Jerusalem, searching the old city, Joseph and Mary cannot find Jesus. Just even some fun kind of like hypothetical questions like, where did Jesus sleep 
for those three days? Was he like the young boy Samuel from the Old Testament who basically became a worshiper full-time in the temple? What did Jesus eat for those three days? Was this even maybe a preparation for the fasting that would happen uh, later on in his life? But for three days, Jesus hung out in the temple asking questions of these religious leaders and they're totally blown away by who this little boy is. The three-day part is interesting too. Where else do we hear about three days in the Gospel of Luke? You know, Jesus went missing for three days post-crucifixion. And yet he was found. The risen one, overcoming death, conquering sin. The tomb is empty. Amen? Amen. So after three days searching for him, verse 48, we see the humanity of Jesus now. As his parents scold him, it looks like. Son, his mother said, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantically searching for you everywhere. So Jesus, maybe even confronted in front of all the people he was asking questions to in the temple, His parents are just saying, we were worried about you. Where were you? We often ask that question too, don't we? In your journey with Jesus, have you ever asked him, where were you, God? I needed you. You didn't seem to show up. It's a question that Lazarus' sisters ask when Lazarus dies. Jesus, if only you would have been here Sooner. My own family, we had this question kind of raised even this week. My, my sweet aunt, who maybe is watching right now, um, had some heart issues, and she was put in the hospital earlier this week at Mission Hospital down in Mission Viejo. So all our families just worried about her, praying for her, visiting her. Her son, my cousin, on one of the nights he was visiting, visiting her, I think it was uh, Wednesday night of this week, as he left the hospital at the end of visiting hours at eight o'clock, tripped and fell in the parking lot and broke his hip. (laughs) And ironically, my aunt is on floor four and my cousin is now on floor three. (laughs) On Friday, we went to visit him and you're like, we either have to laugh or we have to cry right now, right? Like, this is crazy. Both of you are in here separated by a floor. And we also joked, you know what? It's kind of like getting robbed in front of a police station. Like if you had to break a hip, wouldn't you want to do it in the parking lot of a hospital? (laughs) But this simple question we even were asking this weekend was like, why God, why did both these things happen the same week? Maybe you've even had heavier things happen in your life. Like Jesus, where were you? We were frantically searching for you. Where did you go? It even appears here in verse 48 that, is it possible that Jesus is disobeying his parents? Is it possible that this is actually an act of of rebellion? It's it's an interesting question. But we do know in Hebrews chapter 4 that the scriptures are clear that Jesus was without sin. 
So he couldn't have been rebelling against his parents or it couldn't have been considered sin in this moment. As Hebrews 4, you can read it on the screen. Let's let Jesus answer this question for himself. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, verse 49 and 50, it's the first words of Jesus in the gospel. Before, we've just been observing Jesus. Now, for the first time, as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus speaks. And this is what he says in uh, verse uh, 49. He says, but why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But of course, they didn't understand what he meant. Jesus right here, trying to remind his earthly parents, he's in full knowledge and agreement of this, is that obeying the father's will perfectly supersedes even his parents' wishes. He's understanding in this moment the deity that he possesses, that is his nature. Jesus is a human. He had earthly parents. We'll see in a moment. He obeyed them as he returned to Nazareth, but he ultimately was subject and surrendered to the Father, the heavenly Father. Jesus understanding his business. In fact, there's a translation that says, didn't you know I needed to be with my Father's business? So we see here, Jesus, fully God, fully man. Again, he had to be human and to be our substitute. He had to be God in order for that substitution to matter. Second Corinthians says it so well. I love this passage. It says, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Could we say that together? It's such a beautiful passage. Can we just say it out loud together? Say it with me. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Amen. Another translation is he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we could be made of the righteousness of God. Oh, changes everything. And in these last two verses of this passage, we see Jesus growing up. Look at verse 51. It says, Then Jesus, after leaving the temple with his family, returned to Nazareth, Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother, this is where I indicate that, that Luke was getting firsthand interview accounts from Mary. His mother pondered all these things in her heart. And she's still wrestling with this idea of Jesus and and who he was, the, the Messiah. Fully God, fully man. I highlighted again this word, obedient to them. Jesus was obedient to his earthly parents. The one who holds all things together, the book of Colossians says. The Alpha and the Omega, as the book of Revelation says. The one who created the world, the scriptures tell us, obeyed Mary and Joseph. If God can do that, I think as his followers, we can obey our bosses here on earth. <laughs> Let that even be an application for us. Jesus and humility surrendered to earthly parents, fully God, fully man, surrendered to parents. As his followers, may we 
gratefully, humbly surrender to bosses, authority in our lives. Are you in? I can see some of you wrestling with that right now. <laughs> what a testimony it would be to our world, to our friends, to our coworkers, if they watched us submitting and surrendering to authority, to those that God's placed over us within the will of God. You see this example of Jesus. And then verse 52, this is a, a famous one here in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and all the people. So the perfect human, the sinless human, grew in all of these things in preparation for the three years of his earthly ministry. So this is all we get from the age of 12, Gage and Seth's age, to the age of about 30. We don't know anything that happens in between these two benchmarks. But what we do know is that during that time, Jesus grew in wisdom and in physically and in favor with God and with those around him. Jesus grew. It's kind of a mystery in some ways how all that happened. But again, a good application for us. Are we, as Jesus' followers, are we growing? Are we growing spiritually day by day, year by year? It's a new year, if you didn't know that. It's 2023. What will we do to take steps of growth? I quote this guy a lot. I like him. Pete Scazzaro says a very convicting thing in one of his books. He says, we may be chronologically 35 or 55 or 75 years old, but still an emotional and spiritual child. Ouch. Or as one person put it, I've been following Jesus for 22 years, but in reality, I was a one-year-old Christian 22 times. Isn't that interesting? Maybe we were stuck in, in our spiritual growth. Jesus grew. He's calling us to grow as his followers. Maybe this is the year you grow by, even as Eric was sharing and inviting us, by sharing the gospel with a friend or a coworker, inviting them to Alpha. Maybe this is the year you grow by letting go of bitterness and choosing forgiveness and the power of Christ. Maybe this is the year you grow by establishing spiritual practices in your family every year, as usual. Maybe this is the year you grow by discipling or mentoring a younger Christian. As I said, when I teach, I'm the one that grows the most. When you disciple and mentor someone else, God grows you too. What will you do to grow up this year? We have some good things online, some good resources. We, we did a, a sermon series in the fall called Life with God. You can go online and find some great resources here to encourage you and to help each of us in our growth. But let's look to the true God, the true man, Jesus Christ. Let's grow in him in 2023. I know we've reached the statue of limitations on Christmas songs, but I'm going to bring one back right now because this is such good lines. Thinking of the humanity and the deity 
of Jesus. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, please with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I repent of the places in my life that I've lived year one of Christianity 22 times. God, I ask that you would spiritually grow me this year. And I ask that for our church. I ask that for my brothers and sisters. God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the beauty and revelation of your word, through the fellowship and community of one another, God, would you grow us this year? Would you grow us to look more like you, Jesus? Truly God, truly man, thank you for coming. In the name of the one we adore and worship, Jesus Christ, amen.